don't want to um, replace doctors or human beings, of course. We want to support them. And you also cannot train a model on um, a German population and then transfer that model for diabetes prevention or prediction uh, to the UK population or to South Africa or India. If you use this solution, you have better outcome. If you have this decision support, more patients will survive. The languages of a doctor, of a philosopher probably, of a data scientist, of a machine, of an engineer, we had to learn a common language in the beginning. That was really challenging. You've joined the Experience Cafe. My name is John and today we're going to be talking about AI in medicine. And I'm really pleased to be joined by a really special guest this morning right here in Berlin, who is an expert in this topic. Dietmar Frey. Dietmar, you mind having a quick introduction of yourself? Yes, um, thanks a lot for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to this talk. Um, so my name is Dietmar Frey. I'm actually a neurosurgeon. I'm a doctor by trade. I went to med school here at Charité. Um, also did my specialization. Um, five, six years ago, we actually faced the challenge, or the challenge was getting bigger and bigger to, to actually exploit all the data that is available for doctors, but it is not used. Um, and um, so we founded the Charité Lab for AI Medicine, which is seeking to improve patient treatment by personalization of treatment um, and using all the available data that is sitting in the hospital right now not used to its full extent and um, actually improving patient lives. In addition, we also wanted to go one step beyond that and also prevent people of arriving at the hospital in the first place. So we also founded a small company, uh, which we're gonna talk about later probably, um, for better and personalized prevention to make prevention actually efficient. Fantastic, so I'm, I'm looking to explore that rich topic with you. But before we get on to a little bit more about you personally, mm -hmm. Um, I understand you're a lawyer by training as well. Mm -hmm. um, tell me two truths and a lie, and I'll try and guess which one is the lie. Okay, okay. So maybe um, three facts, right? Um, so the one is I was a professional skier when I was younger. I grew up in the south, and I was skiing a lot, and I was semi-professional skier. I didn't make it to the Olympics, but okay. still. The second one is one day, maybe I don't know how many years ago, in the morning, I was prosecuting petty crimes in court, and in the afternoon, I went to the anatomy um, courses wearing a white coat on the same day. So, okay. And the third one would be, um, I speak three and a half languages. Ooh, okay. Um, can you tell me which of the half languages? The half language would be French. Okay. Wow. That, they all sound pretty plausible, to be fair. <laughs> you, you look like someone who could be a skin. Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, uh, the three and a half languages is the lie. No, that's not true. Oh, right. Okay. I really speak three and a half languages. <laughs> okay, English, German. English, German, English, German, Hebrew, and okay. a little bit of, or half French, I would say, yes. Okay, Hebrew. Okay. Yeah, and... And so which one is the lie? Yeah, the lie is, of course, uh, the skiing. I'm really an enthusiast skier. Okay. I, um, also, my family is getting crazy when I get up at seven in the morning to be the first on the uh, slopes. On the slopes. But I... Unfortunately, never had the opportunity to really do that on a professional basis. Also, so it's a good aspiration, but yeah, you look like a yes. fit guy, so uh, I can... I'm trying to be, yes. Awesome. <laughs> Fantastic. So uh, the transition from... And you kind of mentioned it there, where you were doing kind of legal prosecutions mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. anatomy clauses. Now, what, what kind of prompted the switch from in terms of profession? 
I actually thought that, yeah, maybe law would be involving more people. Yeah, but it's actually a lot of documents you have to read, you have to write. It might sound silly, you, you could know that from the beginning. I found both very attractive, um, but then I switched because I, I really um, find, found out that um, medicine would be it, where, where I wanted to succeed and which I want to pursue. So I actually switched, um, doing it at the same time for a pre period, also for earning some money, doing the second um, round, so to say, um, but I was really enthusiastic and I was really very motivated um, doing everything in medicine. I really um, had a great time studying this. So you found your passion yes, um, I would say and, so. and, and kind of shifted to Jeffrey uh -huh. as a result. And so you've, you've been working in the field now for a while, but you said you, you had your own startup and mm -hmm. doing some great mm -hmm. stuff. What's happening in the field of AI and medicine today? I mean, mm -hmm. um, in, in terms of where we, what are some of the things you're seeing in, and, and how, in terms of some of the use cases and, and data we're mm -hmm. leveraging? Yeah, I think, um, of course, there's great progress over the last 10, 15 years. So AI is always hype and then down, ups and downs. I think um, there now is the opportunity to have so many data points where you could really train and test really good models on in order to improve patient treatment. I think the main challenge is not only developing models that are accurate and powerful and performant, but also to bring these models into solutions that are accepted um, by doctors, that are accepted by regulatory bodies, that are accepted by society, actually. Um, because you always have the challenge to explain, of course, um, how the model works, and you also have to encounter the fear um, both by uh, healthcare professionals and also by patients and citizens, um, how much involvement of AI, of machine intelligence, is there and how much involvement of human intelligence, though, and empathy, and having a doctor. So I think the answer to that is not a, uh, it's not a complete answer, a comprehensive answer, but one answer to that would be to actually always say we don't want to um, replace doctors or human beings, of course. We want to support them. And I think the main thing is AI will help in many cases to better detect diseases, to better interpret imaging. Um, we come to maybe some use cases in a second, but um, it's always a decision support. Mm -hmm. It's not replacing anything. It's just like another information that you can base your decision on just like an MR image or a lab result or simulation based whatever. So I think. So, so yes, in terms of, sort of the outcomes, I guess it's um, better diagnosis and, and uh, ability and accuracy for the healthcare professionals. And I guess also you potentially putting things in the hands of the, the, uh, the end user right? mm -hmm. in terms of self-diagnosis and, and health management, I, I, I gather. So what are some of the latest use cases you seeing kind of being implemented in the field to, to help bring it to life for people? Yes, of course. So there's, as you say, there's um, different maybe segments. So there's one very easy to, to understand segment where you, for example, have radiology images. Uh, and the machine, if it's trained properly and if there's um, um, a good scheme set up, they, the, the machine, of course, can detect much easier and much faster anomalies, for example, in um, breast imaging, for example. So there's an abundance of um, applications out there that can improve 
um, speed and also accuracy of anomaly detection in, in imaging, for example. In addition, um, you can also improve disease prevention or detection, not on imaging, but also, for example, in other data like clinical data or genomics data. So um, there is already now, in many countries where there's a lot of sequencing of, of citizens, they can actually improve prevention because they can detect disease um, earlier and risks for disease earlier. For example, um, Estonia has a great biobank um, and they can now screen for rare diseases and also for diseases like hypertension, diabetes and just have these people um, monitored better and actually um, telling them um, go see a doctor because there might be a hidden risk that you, you, you might not be aware of. Mm. Of course there's a lot of challenges in that, I know that, but I think overall there's many use cases where you can show that um, AI, machine learning, deep learning will improve outcome and this is I think the main, the main point that we want to improve outcome and we want also to respect patient autonomy so there maybe just to counter a question that is always asked mm -hmm. um, of course patients and citizens should only know what they want to know and yeah maybe we come later to that also the, the question of how an information is actionable if mm -hmm. you know something where you cannot do anything about it it might not be very, or people might not want to know. Well, in terms of level of adoption of AI in, in the field today, what, what's, where are we where mm -hmm. at the moment? Is it 5, 10, 20? I think it's still in the beginning, um, to be honest. So there's small tools, I would say, that speed up processes in, in hospitals that might alert people, for example, in stroke. There's a detection for... Um, an imaging sequence where doctors are alerted if there's a stroke, a certain type of stroke, and then they are, um, can be alerted to rush to the hospital. Um, there is not yet a comprehensive approach to, um, to aligning and to integrating available data for the individual patient to, to really see what treatment, what prevention would be best for the individual. So I think in 5-10 years uh, there might be the possibility that you actually have your data ready, which is also a big value add. The technology is ready and the AI is ready in terms of possibilities. I, I think so, yes. I think that the, the AI is ready, the data would be, should be made available for training these AI. Okay, because that kind of links me back to that. So what's the biggest barriers to stopping a mission's <coughs> potential? Right? So, um, we've seen proof points of, mm -hmm. of what it can do, mm -hmm. but it's not widely adopted, right? And, and so what's stopping people, or what are the barriers to adoption? So I think generally the AI is ready. Mm -hmm. um, all the possibilities are there. <clears throat> people know to train and test and validate models. Um, right now the biggest barrier is actually availability of data to train the models to make them performant and accurate to a given population. So for example, you also cannot train a model on um, a German population and then transfer that model for diabetes prevention or prediction uh, to the UK population or to South Africa or India. Mm. Um, the data has to be, or the models have to be adjusted to the given data. And I think still there's a lot of um, 
missed opportunities because we cannot make the data available. And of course, we have to protect individuals' rights. Mm -hmm. We have to have data security and safety. But in order to exploit the opportunities of AI, we really have to open up um, for research and, and development um, the data. And, and so I guess that links back to data protection. And is that very much a country-specific set of rules and policies? Mm -hmm. um, or is it about... Is it about at the legislative level and policy level of the country, or is it more the individual rights to, to data protection and people not wanting to relinquish that right? Yeah, I think there's a lot of regional or country-specific differences, um, both in legislation. So in Germany, of course, we have GDPR. Uh, with a, it's a European. UK is unfortunately not any longer mm. part of that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but. Um, European-wide or uh, EU-wide um, set of rules. You, of course, have um, FDA and other regulations in the states. So this is specific to each region or state. And also the attitudes and the philosophies of individuals are strikingly different. So I think, for example, in Germany, uh, rightfully so, probably we are very skeptic of sharing data. Um, individual data and specifically healthcare data. Mm. Um, in other countries, it's not like that. There's a lot of data sharing. Um, but I think it's a combination of both. Of course, the state, on a state level, uh, you also have to protect your citizens. But I think um, at the end, it's up to the individual how much he or she wants to share and to, to, to improve her or his health. So, and, and at the individual level, the data, I'm assuming when you're training AI to it's, it, using anonymized data in terms of not really interested yes. in the individuals, yes. you want to in the profile mm -hmm. um, to train the data sets. And I guess it's the do I trust you to keep my data anonymized mm -hmm. um, before I agree to, for you to use it. But then I guess then if you flip it around, it says, well, if, if um, I want to provide specific healthcare data points or insight for you as an individual, I need to know who you are. And I guess how do you build that trust? Um, to leverage an aggregated data set to then bring me a specific um, recommendation. Yeah, so maybe it's, it's um, important to understand that you can train the models. So there are two aspects to that. The first is, which I'm going to explain now, um, you can train the models on anonymized data. Mm -hmm. That's no problem, yes. Um, and then you test them on these data sets. Maybe you take another data set and test them on these to, to show that it's, it's good. Um, and the individual being you or me or any other person, can of course input his or her data into this model on a device or in the cloud or on a safe server. Um, and then this model, which is deployed for you specifically, can output your risk or your predictions and so forth. So actually the data doesn't have to leave you, mm. your sphere. So the model comes to you. That could be one thing. Of course, then the model could, couldn't be improved by your data, but you could have your prediction without any sharing of data. Um, the question is, of course, how many data do we have for training and testing and improving the models? But that's a different story. The other point you mentioned, of course, a lot of data is anonymized and pseudonymized and everything, but um, there's an abundance of data that shows that actually um, a lot of things can be re-identified. So there's okay. now a race between 
anonymization and re-identification in imaging and clinical data and so forth. So, and also here, there, have, there has to be a good balance between the, the private data and also the, the need for research, for example. Mm. So, so you're saying there's a risk there that I can identify the individual even though the data is being yes. anonymized. And that's, yeah. 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 yeah, of course. So you see that in studies um, and um, that if you had five or ten data points of a given patient, you could re-identify this person. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there's the rule of three that um, if you have three or more people able to be re-identified by this given data set, then it's okay. But it's still very much in the beginning, and I think there has a lot of um, yes education to be done um, also with policymakers and to find this balance between, as I said before, the right of the individual and the needs of society. Mm. And, and I guess there's, there's great potential there that, that clearly um, you're busy with. Uh, so, so maybe that links to what are some of the latest projects you're working on? Because mm -hmm. I understand you're working with the European Union, uh, yeah. Union as well as doing some local mm -hmm. work. What, what are some of the things that you're working on right now to help crack this opportunity? Yeah, so the, the really exciting thing is what we're doing now in the Charité lab is that we are actually testing and validating a decision support system for stroke treatment in the hospital. So a lot of words now. So we actually developed over the last four years within another EU grant um, a decision support system integrating data from the individual patient um, to better know which treatment option, there are different treatment options, if a patient arrives in the hospital, is rushed into the hospital due to a stroke, meaning severe impairment of speech or um, weakness of the limbs, and then the decision has to be uh, made within some minutes, let's say 20-30 minutes. And um, right now the gold standard, as we call it, is that mainly the, the age of the patient and also the time between onset of stroke and arrival at hospital is critical because then you can estimate how which treatment is best, to put it simply. Um, but what we have been doing now, we have been integrating both imaging data and all the clinical data that is available for the individual patient to better know which um, treatment is best. Because, of course, if you do a statistics about uh, of 1,000 patients, you always have a lot of people missed out on the bottom and on the top part. And, and what we are trying to do and successfully um, doing right now is actually that we integrate all the individual data and have a better personalized recommendation for treatment. We are not there yet, but um, with the help of the European grants, uh, we, we could really pursue that and now are also, and this is another challenge, if you have the model, you have a good performance, you need to integrate that into the hospital setting. And so this is a very big challenge that is also tackled. By the way, together with IDMIX, yeah. who are partners in this endeavor. And that kind of links me to the next topic that says, so you've got the data models, you've, you've cracked the problem of mm -hmm. getting the predictions and getting the access. I guess it's the how do you then provision it to the end user? Because yeah. I, I guess where the power comes is at the point of use or at the point of need. Um, and, and how do we kind of pull that together and make that accessible to either, I guess you do, you've got different um, folks doing it, right? Between the, the doctor mm -hmm. or the patient mm -hmm. um, or the healthcare insurer, 
how, give us some insights around what we're doing with UI. Yeah, that's a great question, of course. So it comes down, I think, to acceptance by the users. If in this example, decision support has to be accepted by doctors on the ward or in the ER or wherever they work. And the integration of a solution is always very challenging because they don't have time. They already have, in the Charité, we have 80 different software systems, yes, running in parallel somewhere, um, providing data and so forth. Um, so to have an additional tool uh, to be integrated is really challenging. Uh, but you can do it if you show there's an added value um, to the user, to the doctor in this case. And um, also, and this is also a combination, if you can explain what the model is based on, what assumptions and what, what um, tool and what models are actually used, then it can also be visualized towards the patient to show actually, yes, we're doing that because of that, and it's not just a black box. We, we can really explain a lot of things within that. To explain about AI, and, yes. and I guess it's also, to your point, if, if doctors are faced with 80 different systems in, uh, in the hospital, how do you make that simplicity of mm -hmm. interface and interaction with that data to make it easy? And kind of integrated into the yeah, I, I think it's a great, great yeah. uh, chance actually to have a decision support integrated in the hospital setting, which we are doing now with three different clinics and in in Europe world uh, Europe wide, um, to show that there really can be an integrative solution for treatment, because um, if that works, it can really be a game changer. Um, maybe in the next five years, I wouldn't say in the next two years, but to have actually a good solution that integrates data and that outputs recommendations or alerts for some um, medication interactions or st stuff like that. So also not very high level stuff some, some, sometimes, but that is actually usable and that has good UX, UI and, and so forth. I think this is neglected overall in the healthcare system a long time. And hopefully, hopefully together we can change all of that. Yeah, I think just curious around um, improvements in terms of outcomes. So, uh, without this kind of intervention, just the way we do things today, what do you think the success rate is in terms of diagnosis or, or outcomes versus if you overlay this capability? How does it move the needle in terms of sort of order of magnitude? Do you have some data on that yet? Mm, we, we don't have data for this acute decision support system uh, because we are just collecting the data. Um, I think this is the main and crucial question, that you can show um, benefit and outcome. Um, I think there's, or I don't think, there's a lot of apps out there, a lot of solutions that are advertised and that, that show, yes, we have great models, but only very, very few of them actually have a study um, that show if you use the solution, you have better outcome. If you have this decision support, more patients will survive. You have to have that just as a randomized controlled trial, just if you implement a new, or if you test a new drug or implement a new device, uh, you will have to have a reasonable study uh, showing there's improved outcome. Yes. I think this is the next crucial step, actually, before it can be adopted. So, so Dita, in terms of apps and, and users, Tell us a little bit about Health Advisor, which is something we've been working with you on. Yeah, that's a great example, actually, a use case where you can actually um, put a model that is trained on extensive data 
uh, into a solution for the citizen. Um, meaning we co-developed with IBM um, the health advisor which assesses your risk for stroke and cardiovascular events, meaning heart um, diseases, and translates these, uh, this risk actually in recommendation, individualized recommendation. So it assesses your risk based on your individual features and outputs the most efficient prevention measure you can do as a person. Um, because we think prevention overall is failing, um, to put it bluntly. Um, many doctors talk endlessly with patients um, about very, very broad goals and not specific goals that they can reach. So many, many patients are sitting on their chairs and getting drugs um, and not changing behavior. And I'm, I'm confident and I'm really convinced that if you personalize this engagement and the insight into your health by providing information on your risks and by actually recommend, recommending um, individual feed, um, 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 measures that you can follow, um, that would be great, yeah. Awesome. And then I guess the use cases are potentially significant, right? You've Absolutely. started off with strokes. Exactly. But uh, I guess as an end user to be useful, I'd want it to be my, my uh, to-go place for a whole range of different health apps. Absolutely, because I don't think you have 10 different health apps in the future. You have one health app. And so it's called the health advisor in order to integrate the data and to really show risks and to enable you to empower you as a patient to, to lower these risks and live healthier. And I agree, this is a great opportunity to integrate with all these um, fitness trackers and devices and things as an integrated proposition as well. As, as yes. A yeah, the input data is very various. So we, we can, in, we have um, variables, we have ICD-10 codes, meaning the, the comorbidities, the diseases you have. We have a whole bunch of different input features that can be used, that there's no restriction to that. But there's also nothing that excludes you. If you don't want to upload your imaging data, it doesn't mean that the, the um, prediction is not good. Fantastic. So some practical advice for our audience. What are the top three things I need to do to avoid a stroke? The top three things, yes, that's obvious. If you smoke, quit smoking. <laughs> uh, you have to have a lot of exercise, but that doesn't mean you have to go to the gym and lift weights. It's um, also very, very efficient to do 10,000 steps a day. That lowers your risk by 30%. If you adhere to just 10,000 steps a day, it might sound a lot, but if you're doing eight, it's also okay. And of course, um, eat healthy. Fantastic. Yeah. Great. Yeah. And, and I guess we're, we're working with you to, to test some of those mm -hmm. things and establish that data point, right, in terms of maximizing achievement. Well, that's been really great insight, and um, maybe let's switch tack a little bit to yeah. a little bit more about you. So I've got, I've got ah, okay. my 10 questions here for you, kind of quick A or B type okay. answers. Um, and then we'll see where we go from there. So, uh, easy one, tea or coffee? Coffee, definitely. Morning or evening? Morning. Yes or perhaps? Yes. Iron Man or Spider-Man? Spider-Man. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm not into that. Do you know who those two people are, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, disruption or transformation? Transformation. Facebook or Instagram? None of these. Okay. I, don't, I don't use them. You're not into social media? Okay. No, okay. actually not. That's fair. A live concert or live streaming? 
live concert. Cloud or GDPR? Cloud. I was expecting GDPR given your, your fellow insights. In terms of what we've also discovered uh, in our professional careers is that we tend to learn from our, our biggest mistakes. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in, the, in the search of innovation and discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that is a foundational building block for, for future successes. What are some of the, what, what's some of the one or two biggest learnings you've had uh, in your experience that have helped to shape where you are today? Yeah, maybe um, I won't go back to elementary school. Yeah, probably <laughs> a little too far. Back, yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe one thing, um, when I did my dissertation um, in med school, so sitting in the lab and trying to find um, cells that could um, actually be a target for antibody-directed therapy. It's very specific. Um, I was sitting there and actually was failing to, to show that these cells are good for that. Um, and it took me probably one year to, to actually get the insight, or one and a half years to get the insight that this work is not a big success story, but rather it is a good scientific work uh, which can prove that this path is not to be pursued any longer, Yeah, which is also a very, very important part for science. I think we have way too, too few um, negative results published. Um, and then I, I sat down and thought, yes, maybe I'm too soon, maybe it didn't work, probably it was, yeah, you always try to externalize the problems that maybe the supervision was not the best and so forth. But actually the point um, was that probably it was a combination of many things. Um, so actually the technology that we used was really, it was then state of the art, but now we have light cycles that are, I don't know, 10,000 times faster and better. Um, and probably also being alone, no collaboration, no real supervision was really bad. So what I took away is you shouldn't protect your stuff. That's in science, a lot of, a lot of people do that. They protect their data, they protect their results until they um, publish. And I think our philosophy also in the Charité lab uh, is to, to really have a collaborative spirit and to really reach out to people and to share. Um, of course, um, everyone needs to have a good um, result at the end, but I think collaboration um, and open science and open data to a certain extent, of course, uh, adhering to the regulation is very, very important to, to really move uh, faster and yeah, exploit technology to, to improve patient outcome and so forth. So I think this was one main takeaway not sitting in a silo and doing your work, but rather asking for help and also collaborating. Yeah, that's, that's a really good insight. And I guess in your experience, has been a collaboration of people from different disciplines as mm -hmm. well, and then outside of your profession to give a different perspective. Absolutely, yeah. And that was also a very funny thing in the, in the first few months in the lab. So I hired some machine learning people, I hired some data scientists, and we had this I introduced this kind of sprint meetings, very, very, not the sprint meetings you are used to in the industry, but still we try to adjust that a little bit to science. And the first few months we couldn't understand each other because someone said um, accuracy and meant something different. So the languages of a doctor, of a philosopher probably, of a data scientist, of a machine, of an engineer, we had to learn a common language in the beginning. 
that was really challenging. It, it really paid off, but I think this interdisciplinary approach is very important, but there's also challenges in that. Yeah, and to put understanding each other. Yeah, exactly. Three and a half language yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not just about language, also terms and terminology and taxonomy. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. And how do you kind of bring a common way of working as well together to make it make it happen? Mm -hmm. um, really interesting. So um, maybe to that's been really um, a great topic to explore with you. I guess maybe if I if I draw to a close, if you think about where you are today, what we've been doing, you've given us some insights around kind of kind of some of the things we're testing in the market today. Where do you think we will be in five, ten years' time? You sort of alluded to it at the beginning of the discussion. Mm -hmm. but, um, Based on what you see now, the, the technology is ready. It's mm -hmm. a change mm -hmm. aspect. What, what do you think will be in five, ten years? Time? I think so. First of all, if you look at, so I think a lot of care will be not happening in the hospital anymore. That's yeah, that's common knowledge probably. That a lot of things will be patient centric, patient centric, and not hospital centric, meaning um, that the patient also as the owner of his or her health data, will be moved to the center and not just in words, but also will own the data and will have insights into the data. And how can we do that? By apps, for example. It always sounds so silly, apps. It's just a tool to play with. But I think good apps that integrate the data, that store the data. We have in Germany and different countries very different systems of doing that, so we will not dig deeper into that. But an app that enables the, the citizen, I don't like the term user too much, so the citizen, right. um, uh, the citizen to, to actually access their health data and to also have insights into their health by applying different tools. Um, that will be one thing that will happen over the next, I think, only 10 years. Um, but in the hospital system, so, and we are actually doing a lot of stuff also with IBM uh, towards that, also with a, with a startup, AI for Medicine. We are um, developing actually models for solutions, apps or decision support or dashboards, whatever, um, that will actually enable the data to, to provide information. Um, in hospitals, I think on the one hand, it might go a little bit faster of adopting small tools for different indications and for different situations, but the overall change in hospital that we really have an integrative data set that will provide answers is at least in Germany also in the range of five to ten years. And, and I guess that's, so if I take away that we're going to basically put the power in the, the hands of the citizen yes. to, to manage their health effectively. Yeah. And I guess that opens up a whole new opportunity around an ecosystem around and challenging potentially the existing roles of the healthcare providers today and, and how do you serve that, mm -hmm. that citizen in, in a better way and adjust? Yes, I think also doctors will have to adapt a little bit, of course. I think, so my wife is a GP, so she is in constant contact with patients and I think this is really important. I think we shouldn't see technology as a substitution. Yeah. Also in hospitals, we've seen that over the last 30 years, there was efficiency, less doctors, more operations, surgeries, and so forth. I don't think we should save money to dismiss doctors. I think we should have doctors um, talk to patients more. 
and also take care of patients and not only in a two-minute conversation but also have this longitudinal aspect of accompanying the, the patient better. And if we would free doctors of, of a lot of things that would, with the help of technology, to also provide insight, that would be really a good scenario. Absolutely. I and mean, I'm thinking that has significant implications potentially for healthcare insurers, um, pharmaceutical companies mm -hmm. looking to provide specific therapies or drugs right. for the individual. And I think that's going to be a really interesting space to, mm -hmm. to see where that goes over the next five, ten years. Yeah, it's really exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah. Dear, it has been really nice to speak to you. Thank you very much for coming in this morning. And uh, we look forward to, uh, to the next five, ten year journey with yeah. you in terms of taking this forward. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Yeah. Should we keep talking while the music yes. goes? Okay. In the background? <laughs> <laughs> uh, good. Well, yeah. Okay.